And so Bill is not the sole author of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. There were two groups of AA at the time. There was the the group in Akron, which is the Western Center, and there's the group in New York, the Eastern Center. So Bill wrote his story, Bill's story, and he wrote more about alcoholism. And those were the first two chapters. And then as the stories or as the text of the book was being developed, dictated to Ruth by Bill, it was sent off to Akron and to the groups in New York so they could discuss the chapters and mark it up, what we would consider to be the first group consciences in Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. That was the voice of Mr. Jimmy D that you heard at the beginning of this episode. I know many of you have heard his voice before and know that voice. And you are going to be hearing so much more from him in just a moment, but first things first. This little old episode, the one you listen to right here, right now at this moment that you're bending those ears toward is brought to you by Janice and Kathleen. You know what Janice and Kathleen did? Well, let me tell you what they did, folks. They went to our website, soberspeak.com, And they clicked on that little yellow donate tab in the upper right hand corner and they made a contribution. Thank you so much, Janice and Kathleen, for your generosity. This episode is coming right out to you. You know, I guess I can let go of my ears now. I was kind of like pretending like I was bending my ears toward the episode a moment ago. Nonetheless, uh, please keep in mind, and I've said it before, but I just want everyone to know again, the donations go directly to expenses related to the podcast, such as various software subscriptions and hardware associated with the show. I will never quote profit from the podcast, just trying to give away what was so freely given to me. This is truly uh, service work, and thank you. Uh, for trusting me with those resources. All right. So what do I want to, you know, I still get a little nerve. I I still get nervous when I, both when I talk in meetings at Alcoholics Anonymous 
And I still get me nervous when I sit down to make this little, you know, snippet of a recording that I'm going to send out to all you all. Uh, it just, uh, I, and, and I think to myself, well, why am I still nervous? You know, you should be over that by now. You've got up to 115, 120 or whatever it is episodes out there. Um, this should be old hat by now, but I still uh, get nervous and uh, I, I don't. And I don't even know why I just mentioned that, but I just did. So nonetheless, so I had a little uh, washing machine incident this week. So I um, I was here in my house and my daughter was here and uh, I had just gotten out of the shower and uh, she came running downstairs and she said, dad, dad, the washing machine is not doing something right. And uh, I said, what do you mean? What's going on? And it turned out the water was spewing all over our laundry room and going out into the garage and threatening to come into the house. And fortunately, we were at home. And so anyway, uh, I... I, I, I got out there real quick and uh, I was in I, I, I was in my bare feet and it was cold outside and I threw on some shorts because I knew I was going to have to be running outside and dealing with this water and emptying buckets of water and all this sort of stuff. And so um, and then I got in there and I, and I needed to turn the washing machine uh, to the side so I could get to the back where the water was. And because I was in my bare feet and it's a linoleum floor, my feet were sliding all over the place. So I had to run out of the garage and get some gloves so I could get a grip on the washing machine and turn it. And I also had to turn the fridge away. In the meantime, I'm getting a bucket, I'm putting it under there and I'm throwing all this water out into the, into the driveway. And it was, oh, it was just a mess. And I mean, it looked like a, uh, you know, like a, some sort of comedy scene that you would see in a movie. And my, my daughter was just sitting there watching me and she was asking, can I do anything to help? And she was able to do some things to help, but it was, it was mainly me. I just had to get back to that water and uh, cut it off. And finally I got the washing machine, out of the way, and uh, I look back there to where the washing machine was, where the uh, the little uh, I don't know spigot or whatever you call it, the the thing that you're supposed to turn off, uh, and and the the thing that you're supposed to turn off, I was expecting, I, you know, I don't go back there very often, uh, and I was expecting to see a big, you know, like handle that you see that you could just you know grab it and turn it, but it was this little little stick. I mean, not more than an inch long. Uh, and I don't know why they make them this way, but I saw that stick and I was really disappointed. And so I'm trying to grab it with my gloves and, uh, and there's water all over the place and I still can't get a real good grip on it. And finally I got that thing turned off and, you know, we were able to stop the bleeding, but so, and, you know, we're having a deal with getting a new, uh, washing machine this, this week. And, but you know, Hey, these are what they call princess problems. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's not a big deal. And I was at a meeting this week and a friend of mine spoke about a, oh, how did he put this? He said there was an aboriginal tribe somewhere out there that would wake up every day and pray for adversity to come their way. 
Um, and the point being is that they would grow from the adversities that come this way. Now, I could tell you, I do not wake up. I did not wake up that morning and pray that adversity would come my way. Um, but, but there it was. And, and there was no screaming and no yelling between us and me and the family member and with the whole incident. My daughter was absolutely calm, cool, and collective and handled it like a champ. I'm so glad she saw that going on. It could have been a lot worse. And so why am I bringing all this up? Well, you know, this is real life. Uh, I can't hang out in meetings 24 hours a day. The big book says something to the effect of, uh, I think this is on page 132, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not looking at it right now. This is something like, you know, when trouble comes our way, we cheerfully capitalize upon those troubles to either like prove or illustrate God's omnipotence. Now, I'm not sure that... um that I do that, <laughs> always cheerfully capitalize upon his, uh, or cheerfully capitalize upon these adversities that come my way in order to prove his omnipotence. But um, I do have this simple kit of spiritual tools that have been laid out before me, and I can use them if I decide to do that. I, I once heard somebody describe the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and what you learn in meetings on a consistent basis. You know, when you go in there and you sit in those meetings, especially in the beginning, it seems like you're drinking from a fire hose, drinking water from a fire hose. And so you hear all this stuff and people in boot camp, by the way, I've never been to boot camp and I am appreciative of those who have. Um, but they say in boot camp, uh, you go, I don't know, it's six weeks or whatever it is for the armed services. Uh, my guess is it's different for different branches of the service, but let's just say you're there for six weeks and there's no way, no way possible that you can absorb all the information that is given you to you during that time. But let's just say that you get out there and all of a sudden real live bullets are flying over your head. Well, what they say is that information that you learned in boot camp automatically just comes to the surface. And that's the whole idea. And that's what it's like for me in AA. Sometimes I may not think that it's sinking in, so to speak, but if I go back and I take a look at my life, I can see where I have been able to put those lessons to the test in real life when it comes up for me. So, all right, uh, let's move on to Mr. Jimmy D. Jimmy D is going to be talking about the history of Alcoholics now of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I say it's the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. We talk about a lot of different things, right? Uh, and But I just entitled this History of AA. But really what we talk about is uh, the writing of the big book and the various authors that are involved. Um, all the various, uh, I guess what you would call them, characters uh, that were involved in the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous. We talk about the Oxford group. Uh, some of you are going to know that name. Some of you are not going to know that name. And this will be uh, hopefully educational for you, for those of you who have not heard this before, and a refresher for those of you who have already heard it. We talk about the printing 
of the big book. And I had no idea of all this detail that Jimmy shares uh, about how the big book got started, how it was printed, all the, mm, mm, just the, oh, the hoops that had to be a jump through uh, in order to make that happen. And some of the intricacies there, uh, we talk about the Saturday evening post article uh, that was uh, in the uh, Jack Alexander and the Cleveland and we also talk about the Cleveland Plain Dealer article. So we mainly talk about, from my perspective, though, how God is evident throughout the formation of our society, Alcoholics Anonymous. So, my friends, enjoy Mr. Jimmy D and the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay, everybody. So we are sitting here. One of my favorite guests. I probably shouldn't say that. It's like saying, what <laughs> Go ahead. Say it. Yeah. Say it. Say it again. <laughs> say it again. <laughs> I am sitting here with Mr. Jimmy D again. And uh, just in case you are new to the podcast, he has been on one of my Sober Speak Live events. He's been on uh, at least four or five other episodes. And uh, you can go back in the archives. Uh, go to my website, soberspeak.com. And you can, anywhere you see Jimmy D, you will be in for a treat. So, Mr. <laughs> Jimmy D. <laughs> Please go ahead, introduce yourself, and give your sobriety date if you wish to do such. My name's Jimmy. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, sober since August 25th, 1997. I'm very thankful for that today. And your home group is? The Chicago Group of Alcoholics Anonymous in Dallas, Texas. And once again, I just, I know why? you said this. Why, on the, why, why? why? 90-minute right. speaker meeting. So the format was taken verbatim from a group in Chicago, Illinois. The group in Chicago, Illinois, meets on Wednesday night at 7, just like we meet Wednesday night at 7. And the name of that group in Chicago is the California Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. So that's why we did what we did. <laughs> and the California Group got that name from, did they, were they Because that's they a typical Southern California format. So when they took it to Chicago, just like with Dallas, 90 minutes is odd in Chicago, the length of the meeting. And the format that you have the first 20 minutes or A members called up, how the program's working in your life today. So that format was was different, but it was fairly common, is fairly common in Southern California. Okay. Yeah. None of us from Southern California at the Chicago group at the time that we started the meeting. Nobody from Chicago when we started the meeting. So it makes perfect sense. <laughs> and didn't you say there's somebody else who took a meeting to San Antonio? They went to San Antonio, a couple from our group a few years ago. And uh, and so they started a group in San Antonio, Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. It's called the Dallas Group in San Antonio. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like the, um, you know, the spawns of the Pacific Group, right? You've got the Atlantic Group in New York City. You've got the Western Pacific Group, the Eastern Pacific Group, the Midwest Pacific Group, Specific Group in Los Angeles. I mean, What's it I, called? excuse specific? me, specific group in Las Vegas. So there are all these offshoots, right? Like Fox Hall offshoots of the old Fox of the original Fox oh. Hall group in Omaha. Oh. You know, there's a Sherman Fox Hall up here, and there's a McKin used to be a McKinney Fox Hall, and they include the name Fox Hall as part of their because the formats are the same, right? So they just copied and they kind of cite the the name of the the source group or. Who they copied from. Yeah. 
Okay, so as you know, I wanted to have you back over do another recording, and we don't really know what we're going to call this yet. I'll come <laughs> up with a title afterwards, but one of the things you were just talking about is possibly seconds and inches. Uh, we had talked about the history of AA, but it's not really the entire history of AA. It's just little bits and pieces. Um, and second is, seconds and inches, as you had mentioned, comes from Norm Alvin right, when he right, was on. Right. Um, so we'll figure out what musings of Alcoholics Anonymous <laughs> or, or Jimmy D's Believe It or Not. Yeah, or you also- could see, you know, you could, we could actually turn it into, uh, you know, is this true? And maybe people could treat it kind of like an AA scavenger hunt of sorts <laughs> to see if it's really, you know, information that can be, can be verified. Right. So, yeah. Okay, so this is uh, we so Jimmy uh, gives uh, uh, various talks around the city of uh actually throughout the nation. And one of the things that he quote nerded out on lately is he got asked to do a kind of a history of AA type of talk, right? Right. It was actually uh at the 80th anniversary of the book. So April of 2019 was the 80th anniversary of the printing of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And you have, as you call it, nerdy type of tendencies, correct? Right. Big time. So you took a deep dive into some of these various subjects and found out some things. And we we just wanted to come to the mic and talk about these things because I've talked to you kind of offline about them. And I go, that is interesting. (laughs) And I bet a lot of people don't know that. Right. So let's go ahead and start with the writing of the big book and how that came about. So... Bill and Dr. Bob were together in late 37, so AA was a couple of years old, right? Because Dr. Bob had gotten sober in 35, and uh, and Bill was really proposing to Dr. Bob all of these ideas that he had for this new society of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, uh, and one of the things, there were a myriad of things, but one of the things that he suggested was a book that we should write a book of our experience uh, along with hospitals and, you know, sanitariums and, uh, you know, fundraising all across the world to, you know, uh, make all these this ministry possible. Do you know uh, what the original motivation for the book was all about? The true, the true motivation for the book was that we felt like the word-of-mouth program could be easily distorted. And so it would be like the whisper game. I whisper something to you, and by the time we get to the eighth or ninth person down the road, that person's going to report that they heard something that's radically different from what I started. So there were valid reasons why the book was suggested to be written. Uh, One of the other reasons was we felt like that that was a way that people in far-flung places would be able to avail themselves of our recovery program. We never expected that Alcox Anonymous could even exist in all of these remote corners of the U.S. or now, of course, the world. So it was to make sure that the message could be carried, even if a human being didn't actually carry that message. Okay, yeah. so I so I got you off track, but I also but I'm going to get you off track one more time. Let's go back to 19. 
35, right? June 10th, 1935. Dr. Bob Sobriety Date. Dr. Bob Sobriety Date. A lot of people don't know that it was not his original sobriety date. So why don't you go through that story? So in some historians, and, and I, you know, disclaimer, I'm not a historian in AA, and I'm not an archivist or, you know, don't possess an archives of AA history. But uh, there are some people that will dispute June the 10th because, you know, of the convention that Dr. Bob went to in, in Atlantic City, they know the dates of that convention. And Dr. Bob got drunk at that convention. But, you know, June 10th, 1935 is in the book. It's a date that Dr. Bob claimed as his sobriety date. So that's it. Right. So but Bill had had come to Akron in May. And had seen Bill had, had seen Dr. Bob had visited with Dr. Bob uh, in late May, I believe, or early June. And then Bob and Smith, Dr. Bob's wife, and Bill really tried to discourage him from going to Atlantic City to that convention. They thought he'd get drunk. They thought he'd get drunk. And they were right. They were right. He got drunk. And, uh, and so when he came back and got sober... Um, you know, that he, I think he had a bottle of beer or two bottles of beer be- before he did the, uh, that operation. Right. Yeah. And so there's some humor behind that. He's, <laughs> he's a proctologist. Right. A lot of people don't know that Dr. Bob was a proctologist. So, I mean, my God, nobody would want a shaky proctologist operating on you. So, and so my understanding is that there was that morning he was going in to do the operation. They said, Bob, you've got to do this right. operation. Right. He said, I can't, I'm shaking. Bill gave him a couple of bottles of beer. Right. Exactly. Understand? Yeah. Yeah. So that was his last dream. Now, I don't know who received that operation. <laughs> and I don't know if they want to be known in the annals. <laughs> no well, the, pun intended. Well, the, yeah. <laughs> oh, God, that's bad. <laughs> of AA, right? right? But they should, I don't know, their name should be front and center well, somewhere. You, you have to expect that they were not going to get good medical care because everybody in Akron knew Dr. Bob was drunk. So, you know, they were kind of set up for failure from the beginning. So, you know, hopefully it was all he was doing was just a little lance or something back there and not some <laughs> some major cutting. So it's frightening, right? It is, so, it is. Yeah. All right, so this person, un- unbeknownst to them, is part of Alcoholics Anonymous history at that point. Right. But okay, so that was the last couple of beers he had that morning just right. to kind of uh, soothe his nerves. Correct, all right. right. So go on from there. So uh, so then, uh, you know, Dr. Bob got sober, and isn't that funny? Because a lot of, a lot of members of AA uh, don't know when Bill got sober. And we're not really concerned with when Bill got sober, uh, which was December 10th or 11th, I think, of 34. Bill was sober about six months. But uh, Bill's sobriety in and of itself didn't mean anything until the message was successfully carried to somebody else. So the genesis of our society, the birthday of our society, is always celebrated Dr. Bob's sobriety day. Very interesting. Yes, because a lot of people, again, we don't, you know, Bill obviously cared when Bill got sober, and we had a gratitude dinner, and that's really where the gratitude, November being gratitude month, comes from, because November was the month, certainly it's the month for Thanksgiving in the United States, but when you think that gratitude month is celebrated by Alcoholics Anonymous members around the world, and it's the United States that has Thanksgiving, uh, the gratitude for the fact that uh, that was the end of Bill's uh, journey in alcoholism, 
And, uh, and so it's my understanding that the gratitude dinner celebrated Bill's birthday, um, even though his birthday was early December. Uh, you know, November is always recognized here as gratitude month. Hmm, very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So back, so now we're back to 1937 again. Uh, in other words, the, the writing of the book. So right. you said they had been together now for a couple of years or starting to think about documenting this process, basically. Right, right. The, what we called the word of mouth program. Now, the Akron groups were, te- were still tethered to, Ox- to the Oxford group. So okay, go ahead and explain real quickly, just in case people don't know what the Oxford group is. So the Oxford group was a movement uh, that Bill and Dr. Bob had both been associated with. Uh, it was a moral rearmament movement. In other words, it was a it was a it was a Christian movement, uh, and uh, and so when Ebby was a member of Oxford and had really carried the Oxford message to Bill. Uh, that that really began a process that ultimately got Bill sober. Um, so the Oxford groups were, uh, it was this organization of people that were uh, witnessing, but they were really witnessing in a in a Christian sense. In fact, Oxford was disinclined to endorse Bill's working with drunks because that was not their purpose. Their purpose was not about sobriety. In other words, it was about uh, surrendering to God and becoming a more godly person. Um, It's interesting that in Bill's example, um, you know, the byproduct of that was that he surrendered to a God, ultimately of his own understanding, and he got sober. But Oxford was not going to be diverted it, that was not their purpose. Their purpose wasn't to sober up drunks. That was not that was not their purpose. Now in Akron, it kind of morphed into that because the quote unquote AA groups, like the meeting at King's School, which is the first AA group ever, it was an Oxford group. It was still Oxford group even after 1935. I mean, it was they were tethered to the absolutes. They still used the Oxford absolutes, and I don't remember what all of them Purity's are, but purity. Right, the four absolutes, and uh, and they use this thing that they called the word of mouth program. Now, New York always knew itself as Alcoholics Anonymous uh, from the time that we got the name of our society. Now, in '37, we didn't have a name. We didn't have a name till we printed the book. There was no name to our society. So, uh, and then Oxford fell out of favor. Sidebar deal, but what a lot of people don't know. Uh, and 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 the guy long dead, but Frank Buckman, who was the founder of the Oxford Groups, a leader in the Oxford Groups, Frank Buckman in about 1939 or 1940, along the line, you know, the book's going to print in 39. And Frank Buckman, uh, through public accounts at the time, was uh, was not he did never he never uh, claimed being a fascist. But he was a supporter of Hitler. And that's really what was the death knell, for all intents and purposes, the Oxford groups in the United States. Very interesting. Okay. 
Wow. So, and didn't Roland went to the Oxford groups as well? Right? Roland went to the Oxford groups. Roland was never a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, to my knowledge. I don't think Roland Hazard ever joined AA. Okay. So, Roland, just for folks uh, who may not know, he was the guy who went to visit Dr. Carl Jung right. uh, in Europe. And Dr. Carl Jung said, basically, uh, guys like you are, I don't, have, I don't have much hope for you, but sometimes there's spiritual experiences that can help these people. Yes. So then Roland came back and he, he went into the Oxford group? Is he went right? into the Oxford groups. And in fact, Jung said, um, I've never seen one single case like yours recover. Right. So that was the, you know, the clang, the death knell, right? I mean, there's no possible way that you can get out unless you have this psychic rearrangement. So Roland carried the message to Ebby. Right. And then Ebby carried the message to Bill. Right. That's where Roland comes into this Correct. picture. But Roland, as far as you know, was not a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't think Roland ever was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. He just happened to be in that group. Uh, there was a guy named Zebra. There was Roland. They were the ones that uh, personally spoke for Ebby when Ebby, you know, ran through the, drove into the person's house. I think that was up in either Vermont or upstate New York. This is all prior to Ebby getting sober. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so they vouched for Ebby, and they were members of the Oxford groups. And so that's how Oxford kind of tethered itself or brought Ebby in. And gave Ebby this message, and so Ebby carried that message to Bill. He came to visit Bill, uh, and Bill, of course, was, you know, in his story was not, he was not expecting that Ebby was going to bring a message of sobriety. Mm-hmm. He figured that he and Ebby were going to get drunk and talk about good old times, <laughs> right? So, And there he shows up uh, all happy uh, talking about sobriety. All right, so... Back to the book again. So the book being published and written. Right. So the idea is, is kind of shopped or the topic is shopped when, when Bill happens to be in Akron, you know, talking to Dr. Bob. And Dr. Bob agrees with the idea of writing a book, thinks it's a good idea, but he doesn't think that the hospitals or any of that other mess that Bill's talking about is a good idea. So Bill comes back to New York with the idea of the book. Now, nobody has any writing experience, and there's nobody who's a member of Alcoholics Anonymous at that particular point in time who has any writing experience. (laughs) And so Bill goes off with Hank, who was Hank P. Okay, Hank's one of the original 70 or so? Hank's one of the original members, you know, first 100 members of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Hank was the one that had the office that that we took over. And so, where's that office in New York? New Jersey. This New was on on Vesey Street in New Jersey. So it was called Honor Dealers. It was some sort of uh, used car automobiles, like a clearinghouse of some sort, right? A car car clearinghouse. Now, Hank had been an executive for Standard Oil way back and drank all that up, and so now he's this Honor Dealers guy in New Jersey. Two-person office, him and a secretary. And so Hank gets sober in AA. Bill, obviously, he knows Bill from the time he gets sober in AA. And so that's this fledgling office. It's Ruth, Hawk, the secretary, Mm -hmm. and Hank and Bill. And so when Bill gets back to New York, not one line written, 
Hank decides that he, you know, Hank's the promoter. And so he's going to figure out a way to build capital so they can get this book written and published. So the story always was that the book would have never been written without Bill, but the book would have never been published without Hank. Because he's the one who got the capital. Well, he made up a corporation, right? So okay, we, so we, what we created a fake corporation because nobody, they thought that the Reader's Digest was going to print the book in excerpts. And, you know, the Reader's Digest was the uh, Instagram of its day. <laughs> If you wanted anybody to know anything, you put it in the Reader's Digest. And so Reader's Digest had expressed a little bit of interest. Their religious editor, I think, is the one that they visited. Now, we still haven't had anything written, but we're just shopping the topic or the idea, and they seem to be inclined to print it in excerpts. So once that looked like it took a little bit, you know, that it was kind of going to take off, then... Hank decided that we needed capital, so we created a company called Works Publishing. And the way we created it is not like you and I would create it, sober. Uh, They just got a pad of stock certificates, and they just made up the name and and started trying to peddle these worthless stock certificates uh, in a publishing company that didn't exist for a book that had not yet been written. Hmm. Okay, so <laughs> then take me from there. What? How did? Uh... So it was still the depression, right? So not that that would necessarily matter, but but nobody wanted Hank's stock. So we started selling the shares to our own members. We started s- selling shares on credit, so you could buy a share in Works Publishing as an AA member. And buy it on an installment plan where you paid, I think, 50 cents a week or something like that to get your share of stock. <laughs> and uh, we couldn't pay Ruth Hawk. She was going to be the one that was going to type the book. So we started paying wor- Ruth Hawk in worthless shares of stock in the publishing corporation because we didn't even have any money to pay her salary. Did that ever end up coming to fruition for her somehow? No, somewhere? there were the shares were purchased back. So, you know, we own the book. This is kind of a sidebar deal, but it's I think it's important. So Bill owned a third of the book. Hank owned a third of the book. And the other third were shares that were either in the hands of Ruth or they're in the hands of these AA members that we had actually sold shares to. Right, Charlie Towns owned some shares in that Towns Hospital. Towns Hospital. There were there were people that were not members of AA that had been coerced into buying these shares, but we used some later Rockefeller money, a loan from Rockefeller that we paid back. But we in the after the book started to sell just a little bit, like 1940, early 1941, 1942, we we bought all of those shares. Bill turned his shares into the real corporation. By then, we had created a a legitimate corporation. We had incorporated Works Publishing. You know, I mean, it existed. It was a real publishing company. And, uh, And so the only shares that were left outstanding were Hank's. Hank owned a third of the book. And Hank got drunk. Oh, no. Hank got drunk because he was in love with Ruth. Oh, no. And Ruth didn't care about him at all. How many millions of times could we tell that story about Hawks and 
So what does it say? Resentment is the number one offender. And so he got drunk. So he'd come and hang around the office, and he would complain about the fact that we were using his furniture and his secretary, you know, that we basically took everything from him, right? Again, how many millions of times could we tell that story now? That's right. It's all their fault. That's right. It's all their fault. And so um, Bill said, how much would you take for the furniture? Because he knew that Hank needed money. You know, I'll pay you for the furniture for that were in the office that we're using. And I think the number that was finally agreed on was $200. And Bill said, I'll give you $200 for your furniture if you'll give me the shares in Works Publishing. And so that's how we got the shares. Wow. That's how we got them back. Yeah. Okay, so the book then actually getting published, uh, you know, why it's called the big book. Hold on just a second here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little something, then we'll continue on. All right, this is a good spot. We will be continuing our conversation with Jimmy D in just a moment. Just a reminder that you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www.soberspeak.com. On that site, you can also find our donate button, which you can use if and only if the spirit moves you and you feel really good about it. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Jimmy D. So, the big book. Why it's called the big book? The actual publication of it, when it came out, details like that. So, Bill began the process of writing the book. And so, Bill is not the sole author of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. There were two groups of AA at the time. There was the the group in Akron, which is the Western Center, And there's the group in New York, the Eastern Center. So Bill wrote his story, Bill's story, and he wrote more about alcoholism. And those were the first two chapters. And then as the stories or as the text of the book was being developed, dictated to Ruth by Bill, it was sent off to Akron and to the groups in New York so they could discuss the chapters and mark it up. What we would consider to be the first group consciences in Alcoholics Anonymous. In other words, does this reconcile with my experience? Does it not reconcile with my experience? And so that's how we developed the text of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, For example, Hank wrote the chapter to employers. Really? Yes. And so there are different parts of the book that, you know, had sole authorship uh, by someone other than Bill. But, you know, the, 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 the majority of the book was at least coming out of, you know, Bill's experience slash ideas. I'm assuming Hank wrote that before he ended up getting drunk. Exactly. Right, right, right. So um, so we had the text, and Reader's Digest, uh, in a subsequent visit, said we had never really gotten approval, and we just don't think we're interested in any of that at all. So the Reader's Digest deal fell through, and, and then, of course, we have this works publishing thing, but we don't have any money. I mean, we've sold these shares, but the money has been spent over the period of time, the year, year and a half, that we've been writing the book. Bill doesn't have a job. 
Lois is working at Macy's. I guess she's still working in the department store, $10 a week or something like that. Hank doesn't really have a job. Dr. Bob is doing what he can. You know, nobody has any money. So we find a publisher at Cornwall Press, and he believed in our efforts. And so he agreed to run 5,000 copies of the book, basically on credit, because we couldn't pay him for the printing at the time that we requested the job. Now, initially, we were going to call it The Way Out. And there was a guy named Fitz. He was an early AA member. His story's in the book. It's called Our Southern Friend. I guess it's still called Our Southern Friend, the fourth edition. Anyway, Fitz was over in Washington, D.C., or went to Washington, D.C., and went to the Library of Congress because they wanted to research titles for the book you mean you just couldn't look it up on the internet no we didn't have yeah we didn't have that kind of i mean you know the card catalog the paper card catalog was as <laughs> sophisticated as it got and uh and we found out that there were already 12 or 13 pieces of material titled the way out and there had been another suggestion, and just like with so many things in AA, I don't know that anyone knows the name of the person that made the suggestion, but one of the other suggestions for the name of the book was Alcoholics Anonymous. And nothing was in the Library of Congress with the name Alcoholics Anonymous. So that became the name of the book. So when they took the manuscript up north of New York City to Cornwall Press to run the first 5,000 copies, as we would, with levels of grandiosity that are way beyond our means, we told the printer to use the best paper in the printing house, the best possible paper. And so when it came out, even though it was just, you know, 250 pages or so with the stories, 250, 275 pages, it was, you know, five inches tall because we had used this high-quality paper. And so that's how the name or the nickname, The Big Book, came to be because it was a big book. And Bill was excited about that because we were going to charge $3.50 for the book, which in 1939... It's a lot of money. It was a lot of money. Today, it would be about $64 with inflation and we wanted to make sure that drunks knew that they were getting their money's worth. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why it's called the big, that's book. why it's called the big book. Very interesting. All right. So let's also talk a little bit about, you talked about that gentleman. His name was Clarence. Clarence. I've heard, I've heard you talk about him. Yeah. Before. Clarence Snyder. Okay. So early AA, started AA in Cleveland, right? So the first offshoot of Akron was Cleveland. Clarence was uh, the man who coined the term sponsorship in Alcoholics Anonymous. He was the first one to really talk about sponsorship in AA. Uh, he also defined what he thought sponsorship meant, which started, you know, in the detox or sanitarium or wherever you ho were hospitalized, if that's what happened to you. And then how you were sponsored into Alcoholics Anonymous. And so um, 
Clarence had been, uh, you know, was, lived a long, long time, was a long, long time member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so the, uh, the kind of connection is Clarence was married to a woman named Dorothy, and Dorothy was also an AA member. And so Dorothy's sister had been Hank's first wife. So even though Hank was over in New York and Dorothy and Clarence are over in Cleveland, kind of Dr. Bob's people, everybody had a connection, some kind or another. And uh, and so that's how uh, kind of the, some of the Akron in New York, how the Akron in New York, New York people were, were, you know, they knew each other from, from something that had happened in the past. Yeah, so there is incredible how many ties there are with just people knowing people and, and passing it on. And, right, uh, right. Uh, everyone knew somebody. Right, right. I also wanted you to touch on that. I've heard you tell a story before about some sort of radio station called We the People, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> More of a, there was some humor involved. In so that. we printed the book. We ran these 5,000 copies of the book, and we, we knew, we knew that as soon as we mailed out, like we mailed out some, today we would call them bingo cards, little postcards, three by five postcards, uh, advertising the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, Hank had a list of physicians. And so we mailed these cards to all these physicians. And, uh, and so we were doing uh, marketing, marketing of the book. And, uh, and you know, they go to the post office box and it was crickets. I mean, nothing. Not a single copy of the book. Nothing. Not a single sale of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And, oh, no. Uh, of all the best laid plans. And so we felt like we needed some, you know, some airtime, some promotion. And the best way to do that in 39, it's before, really before t- anything like television, we had the radio. And so there was a guy named Morgan who was a slipper in the group in New York. But Morgan was currently sober. And Morgan had a tie-in to this guy that had a very popular radio station called We the People. And so he was given like a five-minute slot on the radio station to talk about, we wanted him to talk about the book. But they weren't sure that Morgan would stay sober. I mean, like it was a whole week before Morgan was going to be on the radio. So they rented a room somewhere in some flop house in New York City, and Bill and Hank took turns. They locked him up in that room, and they would not let him go out of their sight for a week <laughs> until he got on that radio station so he could talk about our book because we felt like that everything that we were doing was our, you know, our whole success or failure was plopped in the lap of this guy who couldn't stay sober and uh i mean how bad would it have been for us if morgan got drunk got on the radio to talk about our book about getting sober right so anyway he made it and he did it and then it brought some more inquiries and then there was an article in the uh cleveland plane dealer and uh and then you know after that's when jack alexander Saturday uh, comes around and came to AA first, right? I mean, he didn't come to AA as an AA member. Came to Alcoholics Anonymous, blow the lid off AA. He was an investigative reporter. He came to to find out exactly how we were operating this, you know, scam 
where we were pretending like for fun and for free, we were going to share our experience and help people get sober. Mm. And, uh, and all he did was come to our meetings. You know, that's one of my favorite stories ever. I mean, we didn't give anybody any advance information. We didn't have to tell anybody at an open AA meeting, you know, my mother's going to come to birthday night. So would you please, you know, be on your best behavior? I mean, none of that happened. He just showed up and he asked you or me, or he said, you know, how long you been here? How'd you get here? We gave him a little two or three minute snippet of our story or whatever happened. He sat down in a room with everybody else and he listened to the speaker. And then after he did his due diligence, he went home and he wrote an article. And that article blew the lid off Alcoholics Anonymous. It did exactly what Jack intended for it to do. But the way he wrote it is one of the most powerful public information pieces supporting our society that's ever been written. It's a pamphlet in AA for us. It's that important to us. And then the, then the orders and the inquiries, maybe more importantly than the orders, the inquiries came mm-hmm. from thousands and thousands of people who wanted to know what we did to stay sober. Very interesting. Yeah. Jack Alexander, the Saturday Evening Post. Yeah. Like you said, there's a pamphlet. Yes, absolutely. That. that is the article. Yeah. All right, Mr. Jimmy. Well, I really have enjoyed this. <laughs> I have. I mean, these are little tidbits. I can't. I can't wait for somebody to to send you a, a email or a post and say that wasn't correct. Right, and you that's know? okay. Right, if they, it gets them into it, and, and a lot, and a lot of it, a lot of our, a lot of our history, isn't it interesting? Because the text has really served its purpose well which is, for lack of a better term, it codified our, our experience. First 70-odd people that were sober, it did exactly what we expected that it would do. But, you know, it's like along the lines of, you know, you and I have both been in AA for a while. You sit down with members of a group that's 30 years old, and they were all there from the beginning of the group. And if you've got five people in there and you say, how did the group start? You're going to get five different stories. That's right. Sometimes they can't even remember what building they were in when they started. I mean, they're just all these different things, right? So Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age is a great way to find out about the actual writing of the book and really all the, all the minutiae um, that's involved in the writing of the book. Yeah, um, and what I found is... Um, especially back in the beginning, I would be in a meeting and I would hear things, people talk about things like anonymity, right? And you ask 10 different people what anonymity means, you'll get 10 different answers. And and it would sufficiently confuse me enough to where I would go grab the literature and I would read about it and I would say, okay, this is my interpretation now of what anonymity is and this may change as time moves on. But uh, it, it, in, in some ways that's good, right? Because it helped me to uh, crystallize my own thoughts regarding a, regarding a particular subject. Well, and I think about the, the, the reason I think the history... Because I, I would think, okay, so it's 2019, obviously Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, we are next year, uh, this is the shameless plug that I asked you about, the International Convention of Alcoholics Anonymous in Detroit, 4th of July weekend in 2020. So every five years we have the International Convention, and every five years for decades we've presented a commemorative printing of the book. In other words, a milestone printing, a copy of the book. 
uh, from the time we had a, the millionth book was given to Richard Nixon back in 73. Really? Millionth copy of the book Alcoholics Anonymous was given to Richard Nixon because Nixon had started a thing that was along the lines of the National Council on Alcoholism. You know, there were about about that kind of deal. And, and of course, obviously, he was the president of the United States. And then after that, we've used the International Convention, one of the, the big meeting on Saturday night at the International Convention, to gift, like we gave uh, to the Al-Anon family groups, maybe the 25 millionth book or some such. But the point of that is, is that the 40 millionth copy of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, 40 million copies of the book since 1939, will be given to a person representing an agency or an agency or a fellowship that has been closely associated, cooperated with Alcoholics Anonymous. Did not know that. Absolutely. Are you going to the twenty? Absolutely. Even if I got drunk, I'd still go to the International Convention. <laughs> My sponsor told me to go in 2000. I had a couple, three years of sobriety, and I thought that's the last place on earth I'd ever want to be. And uh, and I've been to every International Convention every five years. It is, it is money well spent. Uh, there'll be, we estimate, 47,000 people in Detroit over that weekend. And it is a powerful, powerful example of uh, the sacrifices that everybody has made. Mm-hmm. That we come from, you know, if if I thought, if I read Alcox Anonymous Comes of Age, or if I read the Jack Alexander article, and I've not been exposed to those before, and then I afford myself the opportunity to go to Detroit in July, I'm absolutely amazed at what's been done, because really, none of it should have happened. Hank and Bill could have been thrown in jail for forming a corporation that didn't exist. That printer didn't have to give us anything on credit. That book might not ever have been run. Akron may have never broken with the Oxford groups. The Really, the negative publicity that was associated with Buckman, certainly after we got into the war in 41, would have killed that society in a heartbeat. All of those things didn't happen because along the way, there was some guiding force that said, this thing really is for the greater good. Uh, And these people really do believe in doing something for somebody else. Yeah. And if you are... And the least bit interested in archives or the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, I can guarantee you there will be tons of that at the 2020. There's a beautiful book. I've not yet seen it, but, uh, and this is not about selling anything, but first time, uh, our archives in New York, which obviously is the end all be all for any piece of material Alcoholics Anonymous related, has produced a volume. Uh, to take us through the history of AA from 1935 until now. Uh, It is supposed to be a phenomenal piece of material, but uh, there are all sorts of things, and there will be people. I mean, there is no other place where we collect all these mossbacks with millions of years of sobriety, literally. Uh, the International Convention of AA. And that nuke, that uh, old-timers meeting on Saturday night should never be missed. Are you speaking at the International? Oh, God, no. No, okay. no, no. I've done little. There'll be thousands and thousands of meetings, but every AA member has an opportunity to actively participate. 
they can be greeters. Uh, there are all sorts of things that can be done. To, you know, there's thousands of people that need to put their hands in that deal. But, uh, but the old timers are pulled out of a bowl. So if you have 50 years or more sobriety, you put your name in the bowl when you register for the convention. And they're pulled out of the bowl, minimum 50 years sobriety, and the, they're just little short six- or seven-minute talks that are just amazing, so profound. Uh, you would think that uh, some of the sparkle or the new would wear off after at least 50 years of sobriety, and they're so excited about being AA members. It's just amazing. Oh, I love it. Yeah. All right, so I've been to a couple of international conventions. I'm not scheduled to go to this one but yet. But you're going to be yeah. <laughs> because all your listeners are going to be looking for you. That's right. Well, <laughs> well, they may be looking for you. No, they're going to be looking for you. All right, so if y'all have any questions about the, either the international conventions or you want to contact Jimmy or anything like that, feel more and free to send me an email to john, J-O-H-N-S, com. Once again, Jimmy, thank you so much for this. I, I appreciate it. I'm going to read 164 from the big book to close us out here. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely like Jimmy does, of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Jimmy, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. Friends, may God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Jimmy D., thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Had a great time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. You, Mr. Jimmy D., once again, for sitting down with me and having a conversation. It was most enjoyable. Folks, uh, if that was inspirational, if it was interesting, if it touched you in any way, if you'd take a moment to pause your device and share that with a friend or family member, uh, that would be just fantastic. I want as many people out there to hear Jimmy D as possible and all the other speakers that we have on the podcast. All right. Now, if you want to be part of the super secret Facebook group, email me your email associated with your Facebook account to John J O H N at soberspeak.com. And if you are not following me on Instagram. Come on now, get on it. I'm at at Soberspeak, all one word. Uh, you're welcome to follow us there on, on Instagram. All right, now for a little bit of a listener feedback. And today, Mark writes in and Mark says, Hi, John. My Al-Anon girlfriend living in Kansas City listens to your podcast. Her son is her, quote, qualifier, unquote. Just in case you're not familiar with that term qualifier. It's an Al-Anon term. I'm not going to go into it right now, but nonetheless, I live in Sarasota, Florida since 1999. I own a pizza joint for 21 years now. Been sober for almost nine years coming up on February 7th. 
We listened to your 100th episode together last night between the Dolly Museum shopping and late night ice cream. Enjoyed the show. I'm always looking for ways to enlarge my spiritual life. So maybe your podcast will fit into my daily recovery. Well, hope we can too, Mr. Mark. I am no longer hopeless. It took a lot of work to get to live page 133. Keep coming back, Mark R. And just in case you're out there and you're wondering what's on page 133, well, I know what he's talking about, but I'm going to let you look it up. Page 133, it's a great page, you're right, Mark. And uh, hello to your Al-Anon girlfriend. Glad you guys are listening in to uh, Florida. And uh, send everybody in Sober Speak a pizza? No, that's weird. I don't even know why I said that. But I'm glad you have a pizza joint nonetheless. Anyway, Damon writes in and he says, Hey, John, welcome to 2020, mate. A new year of hope and gratitude with a sprinkling of love and happiness to you and your family. Well, I'm feeling better already. Thank you, Damon. Uh, I've been thinking. I know it's dangerous, but hey, it's what we alcoholics do and love to do. Yeah, you ever heard the old joke? It goes just like that. It says, three words you never want to hear an alcoholic say is, I've been thinking. Anyway, he says inventory, especially for the newcomers to AA, the newly sober, not in the room. So, so, S-O-O-O-O-O-O. When I first got sober, he says, I had some pretty massive, in all capital words, in all capital letters, resentments, like deadly, nasty, evil, boiling hate. You know how they are. Yes, I do. I didn't have a sponsor at the time, so I listened to a lot of podcasts and AA speakers, and I found I could take inventory over my resentments a little at a time. And when they cropped up and gave me the urge to rage and drink, and reduce or dilute the resentments to help the cravings pass. A sort of pre-sponsor mini-step action to beat craving. Well, that's that's a that's a good way to go about it. It's a good process. I'll give you an example. Well, thank you, Damon. I'm looking forward to an example here. I had a pretty good one against someone who I thought had hurt me. Don't we all? I sat with it and I looked at it, all the angles of the resentments and analyzed the real events and the situations that had caused my anger to warp how it really happened to suit how I felt about it and how I used to drink. Yeah, I, I, we call also that rationalization, and uh, but I, I'm very familiar with the process. Uh, I've heard about other people doing that, Damon. Just kidding. Anyway, he says... F them. (laughs) He spelled out the word with a little asterisk in there. He says, they hurt me, exclamation point. Why should I let them get away with that? Exclamation point. That's what we do, right? Well, that's what we do, Mr. Damon. Then it hit me. My resentments can only be solved with compassion and empathy for others. And in return, I give myself some compassion to heal a little. Man, in all cap letters, with a couple of exclamation points, when I first realized that it lifted a lot of pain 
when I realized, oh, excuse me, when I realized that it lifted a lot of pain from me, thinking about the person who resented me, how they felt and how they feared and their life and hopes for the future were at that time. And most importantly, how they saw me and maybe tried to protect themselves from my will and my wishes at the time caused them to act the way they did. Like a cricket bat to the noise. No, like a cricket bat to the nose, mate. Okay. Oh, yes, yes. Now that is not a term that I am familiar with living here in the Unado States of America. Did I get that right? Did I say that in Spanish? Anyway, uh, living here in the United States of America, I have never heard that term. Like a cricket bat to the nose, mate. Yes, hurt, but it opened my eyes wide. So I was thinking, here he goes thinking again, could you maybe explore a little in the podcast, ask some one of your guests, how do they practice taking quick on the spot inventory, quote, in the moment, unquote, and... Uh, a keep the rage at bay tips list, if you will, to help those who don't work the steps, don't have a program or, or sponsor, but do have resentments that won't lift because of the cycle of perception, not allowing it to be seen for its real situation. Great work on the podcast, mate. I love the episode with Samara. Well, you know, speaking of Samara, she will be at our next live event on March 20th, and I'm so looking forward to having her there. Nonetheless, um, I laughed hard at her social hand grenade episode. Great work from you and the team, as always. I see her. If you see her, please tell her from me. It was a puka, P-U-K-K-A, from a fellow Londoner who thinks she is a shining light for recovery. Now, a puka, I am going to have to look that up. You think I would do that kind of stuff before I actually get on here and do listener feedback, but I don't. Anyway, it was a puka. It could be a pucka. It could be a, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Nonetheless, anyhow, geezer is what he calls me. <laughs> Always good for a natter with you, mate. A natter, N-A-T-T-E-R. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb. Two big smiley faces. Be cool, stay strong, and keep spreading the love. Thank you, brother, Damon. Well, thank you, Damon, for all of that feedback. Uh, I passed along your comments to Miss Sumera, and she was most thankful to receive them. All right, my friend, uh, I look forward to hearing from you again. Uh, but then I let him know that, so, and here's another, here's another one he wrote. I let him know that Samara would be like, I just told you guys, Samara would be our next Sober Speak Live event. And David wrote back, he says, awesome. Looking forward to it. This is Sussex, my home right on the sea, a cold, wintry, morning that tickles the skin and makes me feel alive. Happy to be sober and free. Much love, mate. Oh my goodness. And he sent me four pictures of the scenery right out his home in Sussex. And it is absolutely beautiful. And I want to tell you this also. 
he follows me, uh, Damon follows me on Twitter, and he posts a lot of really cool stuff on Twitter for sober, spe- sober people. And I- I'm not on Twitter a whole bunch, but his handle, do I have that right? Is that what you call it? A handle? I've been over this before, but you think I would look this stuff up before I get on the podcast, like I just said about three seconds ago. Nonetheless, he says his handle is at alcoholic dad the number four alcoholic dad four if you want to follow him mr damon all right chris writes in and he says hi john i'm a scotsman living in paris recently seven years sober and on my first attempt at step four would love to join your super secret facebook group thanks for the podcast cheers chris and so anyway i wrote back to him again he says hey thanks for the Quick reply, small world. And I told him that my mom was raised in Glasgow and that she came over here from Glasgow, from Scotland, and that uh, I am half Scottish. And uh, he says that he lived, he says, having lived in New York and Tampa and previously where I had soccer scholarships taken away from me due to my drink problem, I moved to Paris almost 16 years ago at the age of 25. My sober date is the 20th of January, 2013. You, my friend, just had a birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. Chris. And he's seven years sober, although I feel only now that I'm the spiritual awakening is happening in me. I feel that I have matured with the program and with my sponsor. I'm doing the steps for the first time. Well, good for you, Mr. Chris. I feel relieved to be sober and grateful for people within the AA program and people like yourself who are out there as a constant reminder and source of support. Happily married with three kids, one who could not have been born if I did not stop drinking. And there, my friend, is the power of the program. It has literally created life. Wow, very good way to put that. I am a business owner and my life is better today than it ever would have been with alcohol. I discovered your show, John, on a long drive back from Glasgow to Paris and I loved it. Loved listening to the genuine sincerity and kindness and people's experience, strength, hope. Do you know exactly where your mom was from in Glasgow? Um, And then we talk about the secret Facebook group and he got in. He says, thanks for your show, uh, Chris. So, Well, Chris, as as I wrote you back, she's passed now. And I I never asked her exactly where she was from in Glasgow. I know it was a tough neighborhood. Uh, You know, she had like a, I believe, eighth, ninth grade education, and she was definitely a survivor. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, thanks for your interest in my mom. I really do appreciate it. All right. Jerry posts in the Facebook group, the super secret Facebook group, I might add my friends listening in. She says, as I begin my Fourth step, this is from page 66, and it stuck out to me. If we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for alcoholics, these things are poison. 
Very well put, Jerry. I'm glad you posted that in there. And then she went on to say, I liked to be grumpy. I lived to find something to be angry about. What a waste of energy, exclamation point. To those of you working on your fourth step, congratulations. We've made it this far. We can do it together. Have a great 24 hours. Very well put. I don't know why that uh, post just stood out to me, Jerry, but I'm sure glad that you put that in the, uh, that I'm sure glad that you posted that. And you know what? We actually have a title of one of our episodes with Jack Z called The Grouch and the Brainstorm. And if you've not listened to that episode with Jack Z, you may want to go back and find that one. So several people actually posted in the, the, uh, in, in many different groups that I saw this week, uh, about the passing of Bill Wilson on January 24th, 1971. And, uh, but there was a gentleman named Steve who posted in our Facebook group and he, he pointed out several things about this week within the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I really liked it and I wanted to read it. He said on January 24th on, in 1918, Bill Wilson and Lois Burnham were married days before he was sent to Europe in World War One. On January 24, 1945, the first black group for Alcoholics Anonymous was created in St. Louis. And on January 24, 1971, Bill Wilson died in Miami, Florida, only weeks after sending a postcard to Senator Harold Hughes of Iowa saying he wanted to live long enough to see Hughes become president. Now, I've not fact-checked any of that. Uh, I'm assuming it's accurate. Uh, uh, you know, if you find out otherwise, you can send me a notice letting me know. But I thought that was all very interesting. And then on January 25th of 1915, Dr. Bob Smith married Annie Ripley. And then finally, on January 26th, 1971, the New York Times published Bill Wilson's obituary on page one of the New York Times. I found all that very interesting. I thought it was very apropos to uh, read some of that, uh, especially on this uh, uh, history of AA, that what we're calling it, uh, episode that you just listened to. Hopefully you just listened to it. Anyway, all right, everybody. Once again, I love you. Uh, thank you for giving me meaning in my life. Thanks for being on this journey with me. God bless you. Um, I take this one week at a time. I will most likely be back next week. I say that every week. Uh, and uh, so far, I don't think I've missed a week uh, in about two years, something like that. So if you're here at the end of this listening to it, you guys just hear me kind of just, uh, just kind of ramble on now. So anyway, God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.